and, and Puerto Rico, I guess, in a way as well, sort of very strong sense of connection to the Yoruba, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and and so, um, but to a, to to a large degree, one of the key uh, uh, psychological objectives of enslavement was to create a disjuncture in time, where the African person existed in the present, in the present, delinked from their own past. Yes. Rather, they are subordinated to the past of European history, right? You just have to think about how bizarre that is. Snow Mavis with my motherfuckers ass. You want to know how to rhyme? You better learn how to add. It's mathematics. <laughs> Mighty most definitely. It's simple mathematics. Check it out. <laughs> I'll revolve around science. What are we talking about here? Peace. Welcome to another episode of Wise the Dome. Uh, today, I have a very, very special guest, uh, somebody I've been wanting to have on for a while. Uh, he's an educator, a thinker, intellectual, activist. Um, it's an honor and a pleasure to have him on, Dr. Kamal Rashid. Thank you for coming on, brother. For sure. Thank you for having me. Very glad to be here. No doubt. No doubt. So let's um, start from the beginning. You know, I like to find out everybody's origin story and how they, you know, you know how they got into um the path of, you know, the knowledge itself and activism and studying your history and, you know, with that being such a big part of our lives now, you know, it's always interesting to see how people got there, you know, so if you don't mind, share with us how you got to be Dr. Kamal Rashid. <laughs> well, I'm from Chicago. So, you know, growing up in Chicago uh, had an indelible impact on mm -hmm. my development. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things that, um, you know, I grew up on the south side of the city, and um, one of the things that I don't think I fully appreciated in my youth, but it's something that I became increasingly aware of as I got older, and especially I think as a young adult, was just the the rich and deep history, you know, of of, of black folks in the city, mm -hmm. um, as well as the different types of institutions that they had created. So, so I, I always like to think that 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 milieu, that environment, certainly had an impact. I think on on how my thinking developed. But I remember, you know, I think whenever we look at our past, I think there are always sort of these key moments that that are important in terms of, of um, marking a particular moment of growth or catalyzing growth. Mm -hmm. uh, I know for me, for instance, one was I was in sixth grade and I don't you know, when, I don't know about you, but when I was in elementary school, we never got through the whole social studies textbook. Right. You know, and so I remember one day when I was in sixth grade lamenting this, you know, I'm. I'm just reading of my own accord in the book. And I remember coming across this passage where they were talking about the things that qualified George Washington to lead, you know, these these, these so-called revolutionary forces against the British. And one of the things that it, the text noted was that, well, he was an effective administrator. Uh, he had a plantation, you know, and, and oversaw this vast enterprise. And that, you know, that 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 passage was was troubling to me. Mm. Because I, you know, I recognize, exactly, yeah, I recognize that there was a whole people's humanity which was being negated in that that discourse and so i think it was i think it was experiences like those that is this this way in which african people were very clearly subject in the society right very clearly subordinate but there was this very um deceptive way in which uh no there was this intentional effort to mask that right mm -hmm. uh to tell us that our condition was derivative of something other than naked oppression. And so like when I was a teenager, I think really where those that, that catalyst for growth uh, was most pronounced, uh, I used to, I would commute to high school 
not a you know kind of a long commute uh i had to take two buses and the l train to get to high school mm-hmm. and um at one point i was living way way out in the hundreds in chicago people call it the wild hundreds or yeah. the wild hundreds mm-hmm. i guess on the, mm-hmm. the local vernacular and uh whenever i would get to the l station at 95th street this is back in the 90s you'd always have brothers from the, the nation of islam this mm-hmm. uh, the final call newspaper mm-hmm. and they wouldn't just be standing there holding the paper they were in there teaching. <laughs> and so that you know had an impact on me certainly the hip-hop of mm-hmm. that had an impact on me so i think all of those things and then finally when i got to college you know where oh i'm oh, sorry and, and, and when i was uh 16 17 i read the autobiography of malcolm x oh yeah and that was the book that more than anything else changed my thinking. In fact, I read that book in tandem with another book, which is The Art of War by Sun Tzu. Mm. So I really credit those two books, The Autobiography of Malcolm X and The Art of War by Sun Tzu as the books which which one gave me, gave me a sense of who I was Mm. uh, as as an African in the world uh, and and also what I should be about, that is finishing his unfinished work. Mm. But the art of war by Sun Tzu also gave me a way of thinking about this reality. What does it mean to proceed in such a way that, that is based on a recognition of the fact that you're at war, right? right? How does that consciousness of war inform how we live our day-to-day lives? And so it was a book of stratagems, right? Mm-hmm. right. That I began to apply to my life in various ways. And then finally, I went to college. And, you know, going to college was just, um, it was like, you know, uh, it was like if you open the gate, and, or you let the kids out from recess and they just running wild in the playground. That's what college was for me in terms of consciousness, mm. you know, because now I was, I was really, unf- I was really free right. in a lot of ways to explore these ideas. So I started spending lots of money on books. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I started going to lectures, <laughs> you know, uh, different people would bring different speakers down to the, I went to the U- University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign and people would, you know, people would bring down folks like, uh, uh, Ivan Van Sertum, I remember mm. brought down a couple of times, Kwame Ture, mm-hmm. um, Bobby Seals, they brought Bobby Seals down, uh, Bobby Seals down at one point. Um, and, and so going to these lectures also, you know, ca- catalyzed my consciousness and, uh, and at, at different points, I mean, I was, I would work with different organizations and it was all of those cumulative experiences that, that again, deepen my understanding about who we are as a people. And then finally, when I got out of college, I came back to Chicago and uh, through through just happenstance, ended up uh, hearing about Northeastern Illinois University, the Carruthers Center for, well, back then it was just the Center for Inner City Studies and ended up taking classes. I had no idea who was there. Mm. <laughs> and was, there was Jacob H. Carruthers, Anderson, wow. my world. Wow. And that was the experience that more than anything else uh, gave me a foundation. Yes. And where is it going to have a lot of information, a lot of ideas and was developing a grounding. But that experience gave me the intellectual foundation that I continue to stand and build upon. In addition to the fact that also during that time, I'm also interacting with elders like Baba Hannibal, Afrique, wow. you know, who, uh, and those interactions, those experiences um, gave me a sense of purpose. And so when I went to grad school, you know, I was, it was interesting to me because one of the things I noticed is that a lot of my, my peers, a lot of Africans, they would align themselves with these, you know, European conceptual frameworks, whatever they were, Marxism, mm-hmm. feminism, whatever it was, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I saw no need, first of all, to center myself in any European paradigm. Mm-hmm. Moreover, I recognize that if we're going to be free, we're not going to be free under the aegis of another people's ideas. Right. You know what I'm saying? Right. And so I was, I was fortified as mm-hmm. a consequence of my interaction, particularly with, you know, people like Drs. Carruthers and Thompson and so forth. 
Uh, and, and so that was the journey. And so I came back to Chicago after I finished my degree and have been working in the community, uh, teaching and, and, and trying to organize us around liberating ourselves in a whole range of ways around food sovereignty, around survival and preparedness, uh, around cultural reclamation, around self-defense and, and, and so many other things. Wow. Powerful, powerful. Uh, give me, give me one second, brother. Yes, sir. Yes, um, sir. Okay. So we're back. Um, you, you said something that's interesting. Um, about not feeling the need to center yourself in a European paradigm, right? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we have people like, let's say Kwame Nkrumah, we CLR James, Walter Rodney, mm -hmm. um, who are great thinkers, obviously, and mm -hmm. some of our legends and some of our greats who we uphold highly. Yeah. Do you think that was, and I'm, you know, we, we speak highly of the elders and ancestors, so this is not yeah. a, it's not a knock on any anybody. But, right. Um, do you think that that may be something that they were in error about as far mm -hmm. as looking at uh, African liberation and the and the liberation of the diaspora mm -hmm. through Marxist lens lenses? I think I think I think there's an element of that. You know, I think um, I think part of what complicates this. Part of what complicates this is that all I, all ideas, all thinking is bound up in the milieu of, mm -hmm. its, of its conception, of its mm -hmm. conceptualization, right? All ideation, all thought. And, and so like, you know, when you look, go back to the 19th century and you look at those cats like, like I was reading David Walker's appeal earlier mm -hmm. today, I was looking at it for something. And whereas David Walker was really, really incisive in terms of his critique of Europeans, he was also very much aligned with this idea of Christianity and this Christianization mm. of heathen. Mm. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. And I think the only thing I can conclude is that the intellectual milieu to problematize that way of thinking is not one in which David Walker was situated, mm. right? So he couldn't raise that question. Now, had he been born in the 20th century mm -hmm. and he had encountered people and all the ideas that began to problematize this connection between black folks and, and, and Christianity and Christianization as a type of process of European domination, then I would imagine that he would have come to a different set of conclusions. So I think to a lot, to a significant mm -hmm. degree, people like Ian, CLR James, um, Kwame Nkrumah, I think that to a certain degree, yes, they were bound up in a particular milieu, but other people would say, well, no, what about John Henry Clark, right? right? And they would say, well, Dr. Clark was in that same milieu, and Dr. Clark mm -hmm. also was able to see through that. And I think that's compelling. I think part of the challenge is, part of the challenge for us, and, and this is why I think it's, it's, it's really important for us to draw from African paradigms, is that because of what has been done to us all around the world, the, our capacity to readily apply African knowledges to the dilemmas that we face mm. is in many ways very deficient, is in many ways highly deficient. I'll give you, I'll give you an example. I was someone who I care deeply about uh, was having a health challenge. So I started reaching out to these folks who I knew had knowledge of um, traditional African systems of medicine. Mm -hmm. And more often than not, they directed me to, some, to, to Chinese medicine. And there's nothing wrong with that. I don't have, you know, it's, it's, I, I don't have any uh any uh issues with that but it was illustrative to me um of how african knowledges are still very much that we have not fully developed their applicability and capacity 
to address the myriad of problems that we face. And so I think in many respects, I think if you look at, again, uh, Kwame Nkrumah and C.L.R. James, I think in many respects, the type of intellectual and analytical tools, the types of solutions, the types of, of, of conceptual frameworks that issue forth from African thought, I think in many respects, those tools had not been refined and or a conceptualization of how those tools could be refined had not been uh, established. I think also one of the things that was absent, especially uh, because I think this doesn't really begin to form until maybe the 1960s, mm -hmm. is also this critique of, of Western modernity itself, right? Mm -hmm. um, I think Dr. Clark, of course, because of his experience dealing with, with you know, <laughs> the, the, perhaps with the Marxists, right. uh, as well as the fact that black nationalism you know what i'm saying has almost always been such a very powerful idiom mm -hmm. and has always had even before the ideas that emerged had sort of the seed within it the conceptual uh potentiality to problematize our allegiance mm -hmm. to paradigms i think that that process or that the implications of that or the potentiality that so moved him that it anchored him in a different way mm -hmm. than it anchored other people and and so i think he had sort of committed himself to this idea that we find our solutions in Africa. Right. We're going to find those answers, right? right? We're not going to just take this conceptual framework, this solution, which white folks give us. Now we're going to keep looking among ourselves because whatever solution they give us ultimately could be a Trojan horse. Right. And so I think that, and, and I think that's also another part of it, right? Mm -hmm. I think that many of our intellectual ancestors were insufficiently, I think this is, this is a criticism. I think some of them were insufficiently discerning mm -hmm. about the European paradigm. And the implications of that paradigm, right? Um, and yeah, yeah. So I'll stop there. <laughs> no, no. Uh, awesome. Uh, one, one moment. Okay. All right. And so, with that said, um, Marx' critique of Marx's critique of capitalism. Mm -hmm. Do you think that is beneficial within looking mm -hmm. at things through an African paradigm? So I'll say this: I think Marx's critique of capitalism is, in many ways, very powerful and very compelling. I think that he did a, a masterful job of talking about how capitalism malformed relations in pre-industrial Europe, mm. so, mm -hmm. what it did to labor, the way it extracted value from labor, uh, the way it attempted to uh, give, I think he refers to a false consciousness to workers so that they saw their interests as being linked to the interests of the bourgeoisie. I think Marx's analysis of capitalism was, was, was quite excellent. Mm. I think the problem isn't the insufficiency of his analysis of capitalism. I think that the problem is the attempt to apply uncritically Marx's analysis of capitalism to the condition of African people. I think mm. that's the problem. See, for, for instance, if we were to look at this from an African worldview, I would argue that capitalism is simply one manifestation of European predation mm. against the world against humanity right right so i don't consider capitalism as the arch nemesis of humanity i think capitalism emerges from a culture that has as its ethos fundamental alienation so is capitalism today it could have been religious was fun religious fundamentalism yesterday mm. it could be something else that we don't even know is going to exist tomorrow you know this right. is whole discourse uh, about transhumanism it could be that sort of thing that you know that that, that or, or not even transhumanism uh, this idea, it could be some idea that emerges tomorrow about the, the insufficiency of our physicality, right? This idea. So regardless of the ism, 
the yes. pathology still exists. Exactly, exactly. I don't think that, yeah, I think that this idea that, um, I don't think Europeans are effectively capable of diagnosing the cultural sickness that they themselves possess, mm. right? And right. I know for a fact that they aren't capable of advising us in terms of what we should do about it. And so I think it's, I think it's an insufficient, um, I think it's an insufficient tool in order to understand our problems. And so that's what I think is one of the fundamental limitations, right? Many of the black Marxists for generations were committed to this idea to a model of struggle that I would argue is inherently fanciful, right? We would expect uh, Europeans, uh, the masses of Europeans who themselves are allegiant to this idea of white superiority to throw that lot in with African people. Mm. I don't think that's very realistic. I don't think it's right. very compelling. Uh, even if we were to fast forward that idea today, you know, we would expect uh, nations, states around the world that have embraced the ethos of capitalism, that see their uh, process of accumulation as being contingent upon the extent to which they can uh, exploit the resources of black people, mm -hmm. right? Uh, or exploit the labor of black people. And we would expect those folks who see their economic interests as being linked to the exploitation of black folk to throw their lot in with the oppressed. That doesn't seem very plausible. Right. And so I think from an African worldview, I think it compels us to one, understand that one, this is a system that emerges from fundamental alienation, that that same culture will produce other systems that, that will also produce uh, measurable suffering in the world. And that ultimately uh, the most effective mechanism whereby we can create a better world is by nullifying the capacity of those that create the, the, the capacity of those that create human suffering on such a mass scale. I totally agree. And um, I think that, yes, uh, the analysis of Marx is valuable and needed. And, um, and uh, but I do agree that regardless of the ism, there's something fundamental within the way, and historically within the way they have treated non-whites mm -hmm. wherever they are. Mm -hmm. And so... That's why, you know, and don't get me wrong, there are some successful, there are definitely successful uh, socialist um, and Marxist, uh, you know, nations, mm -hmm. but there's still a race problem in a lot of. Yep, very much so. You know, um, and so uh, with that said, uh, African-centered education, as somebody who's an educator, somebody who is an intellectual why is African-centered education important? And for those that don't know what that is, what does that mean? Yeah, yeah. So African-centered education is an approach to education which is focused on a consciousness, a recognition of who we are as African people, uh, and uh, the uh, and, uh, an understanding of the fact that our history, our being, our humanity is not contingent upon, uh, 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 is not, I'm sorry, derivative from our subordination to others, but is in fact, uh, uh, but our historicity is bound up in this long arc of African humanity, mm. right? Because you have this this crazy idea, and you see it every February, just like I see it every February, that our, where our history starts in 1619, uh, something equally right. obscene. Uh, and so African-centered education, one begins with an understanding that African people emerge from a, a very long arc of human history and human possibility. Mm -hmm. uh, it is a, a system of uh, education, which at its core attempts to uh, uh, build from an African-centered way of seeing the world, that is seeing the world from the perspective from an African worldview. Uh, and in so doing, 
equipping each individual African person with the capacity to participate in the process of liberating African people. That is, because I don't want liberation to be an abstraction, building the structural capacity so that African people can have power over their lives. Mm. Uh, you know, again, because people say liberation, you don't know what they mean these right. days. It may just mean your ability to go to the store and buy a 40 ounce or something. Or something like <laughs> right, right, right. Uh, but the liberation capacity <laughs> to have control over structural capacity mm. over our lives to determine our own future. So an African student education is focused on developing that kind of capacity among each individual African person. Uh, and ultimately, also, I would argue, has to be focused on enabling us to confront the challenges that we face, both communally as well as externally. Um, the probably the best model of African Senate education, I think, is the Independent Council of, of I'm sorry, the Council of Independent Black Institutions, which um, identified seven key levels of institution building. And I would argue that conception of African Senate education was linked to the actualization of institutions in all seven of these levels, which they believe was the fundamental basis whereby any people can be sovereign. Those levels mm -hmm. were, were food because you can't be free if you can't feed yourself. Therefore, right. African education has to concern itself with the capacity of African people to feed themselves. Mm -hmm. Clothing, because you can't, you ultimately you have to clothe yourself, otherwise you're giving billions and billions of dollars to other people. But also clothing is linked to other industries. You know, we grow the fibers which enable us to clothe ourselves and develop the infrastructure which enables us to create textiles. And so within even in clothing and food, we find ourselves building a whole range of, 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 of auxiliary institutions. Um, Education, obviously, because we have to have a mechanism whereby we transmit these knowledges as well as other key knowledges. Um, healthcare, because we have to have a way of healing ourselves. You can see the inherent problematics of African people being dependent upon other people to maintain our physical and mental well being. People yeah. who have no vested interest in our physical and mental well being. Exactly. Therefore, obviously, we need to do these things for ourselves. Housing, mm. you know, I was, I've been increasingly hearing about not only just the alarming levels of homelessness in the black community, but also particularly how African men are ill affected by this. Uh, so housing is one, but housing is also fundamental to how we think about community, how we build and sustain and nurture community. Um, what am I, food, clothing, housing, shelter, healthcare, education, uh, food, clothing, housing, shelter, healthcare, food, clothing, housing, healthcare, I'm forgetting something, uh, education, uh, defense. So it is it's just six. In, the state, in defense is the sixth one. Um, and, and again, whatever you build, you have to be able to defend. If you can't yeah. defend what you build, then, then uh, those who are, are committed to your subordination will raise those institutions. So for me, African Senate education is not just you're learning about black people in school or you're reading literature written by black authors, mm -hmm. right? That's insufficient because you can be learning about yourself, but you're not learning anything that empowers you. Right. You know what I'm saying? I mean, like, I'm, you know, I'm sure just like you, I learned about Crispus Attucks when I was in elementary school, but it was not empowering at all. Right. right. Negro right. died fighting for these folks. Yeah. Right. right. <laughs> when more, when more Africans fought for the British, for the promise of freedom. Right. That, that right. Tell us that. Right. Right. <laughs> Man, I remember um, that it was a documentary that came out back in the early 2000s. Um, Man, what was it called? It was, it was a PBS documentary about enslavement. Man, they had this one episode about the revolution, and it was brother Colonel Ty. Okay. Man, that brother, he got he ran away from the plantation, mm -hmm. went and hooked up with the British, mm -hmm. went and fought a whole lot of battles, and one day he came back to the plantation. You know what he did? <laughs> he freed his people and he punished his enemies. Wow. You know, I'm like, I would have learned, I wanted to learn about him. Right. Why is that not in the text? Teach me about Colonel Ty. 
This right. man who wanna free this people? Come on right. now. Right. Right. So, no. so, so it's not just learning about history, but it's a history, a conception of history that empowers that, that emphasizes the agency that is our capacity to shape the world and our image and interest. And also learning, uh, also an education that's grounded in an African worldview. So it's not us reading, you know, cause literature is one of those things, right? It's not us reading. I mean, like we might read Phyllis Wheatley, but we might read it to critique it. Right. But Phyllis Wheatley was quite, you know, she expressed uh, satisfaction. Mm-hmm. with having been freed from the abominable condition of heathenism, mm-hmm. you know, which, which she would have endured had she not been, uh, had her ancestors not been captured by Europeans. Mm-hmm. That's not necessarily, that's not, there's nothing African-centered about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, alternatively, uh, if we're reading about, you know, Bookman and Bookman's prayer, mm-hmm. that, that's a piece of literature that would actually be very important. And, on, and on, particularly in terms of explicating the African worldview, first line he said in that poem, in that prayer, Throw away the image of the white man's God. Mm. Mm. You are That's free. interesting. <laughs> right. You know, so an African-centered education grounds us in the sense of who we are, attempts to facilitate our empowerment, but also ultimately has to be focused on the, uh, transmitting the skills and knowledge is requisite with building our structural capacity. Because liberation is not an idea, it is not an abstraction, it is predicated upon our ability to, def- to, to, to be free in the mm. world. And, and that means being self-sufficient, being sovereign, being self-determining. Indeed, indeed. Uh, that brings up two questions. Uh, first, um, how you mentioned uh, outside of African-centered education, they tend to start uh, Black history in 1619. Right. First thing that comes to mind is the 1619 Project. Yeah, yeah. Um, that was always my issue with it. That, among a few other things, where it's, you know, this idea that we can change America and, but also starting the history at 1619, because even if we're starting uh, uh, the history of Black people in um, in America, it starts before then. I mean, the, the city of St. Augustine yeah. Had black maroons there in right. the early 1500s. Right. Um, the what was your thoughts on the 1619 project? I mean, obviously Europeans hated it, but still within our own community and with our mm-hmm. uh, you know, thinkers, uh, what what did you what did you think about it? You know what I'll say, I'll say, I'll say this, and this is something I learned from Anderson Thompson when I was in uh, when I was at the Carruthers Center. Uh he had this this process, this method he would use when we dealt with texts. Mm-hmm. And he would say, whenever you read a text, you always want to treat the text like it's a suspect. Mm. Like the police do it. You want to put it up against the wall and frisk it. You know, he he would go on to say that you want to ask very specific questions. Who wrote the text? Who financed the production of this text? Mm. Was it written for? Who published it? Mm. When was it published? Why? Because all these things tell us something about what he would refer to as the political economy of of knowledge production. Mm. Right? Some of us are... Hmm. Some of us, I think, are um, some of us uh, derive some satisfaction from the 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 from us being the subject of discussion, mm-hmm. the topic of discussion, particularly about major institutions. The New York Times is a major institution, right? And I think some of us do derive a degree of satisfaction. They they think that there is meaning, there is significance, there is importance in these major institutions engaging in some discussion about black people. Um, 
while it is absolutely critically imperative for us to discuss the enslavement of African people, that discussion, every discussion, every discussion about everything that has happened to us from the time that our ancestors was, was, were captured on the continent to now, has to be a conversation which emphasizes the ways in which we have constantly employed our agency of resistance. And perhaps, you know, perhaps this has been accomplished. But for me, any starting point for the discussion of the history of African people has to begin on, in the African continent. Right. It has to begin with uh, I, the, the ways in which we live, the ways in which we organize societies. Uh, you have many of our people suffering from this painful sense of dislocation because they don't understand, for instance, very, very rudimentary thing, in, in a lot of ways, how the types of patterns which govern our lives today are in fact determined by things that our ancestors had established long, long, long ago, because we believe that, you know, on the boat ride over, we, we got amnesia. Right. So I don't know, I'm, I'm, always, I'm always hesitant whenever major institutions embrace projects focused on the history of African people, because one of the things that, that informs the European embrace of, of the history of African people is that those narratives of history, and this is Anderson Thompson, uh, I think he called it Negro historiography. That's what he called it, Negro historiography. Negro historiography was designed to demonstrate the suitability of African people for citizenship within the white republic. And the challenge then, it's again why he talked about you have to interrogate the, the interest of the producers of knowledge. Are we producing this knowledge because we want to compel African people to resist domination? Because we want to remind African people that sovereignty is the fundamental and natural condition of our people and any other people? Or are we doing this in order to demonstrate how Black people fit into the social fabric of America? Mm, right. And I would say the latter with this problem. Right. <laughs> right. And that's dangerous. It it's, is. It's, it's confusing. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, to, it, yeah, because what it does is, I'm uh, reading it. I, I, I've, I've read, I haven't read all of it. I read about half of it. I listened to, there's a six episode podcast, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, I think maybe through NPR of the 1619 project. And it's extremely entertaining. Uh, I will say that um, it's, you can tell that there's a big budget behind it, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but I couldn't help but notice one minute you talk about the atrocities um, that happened to black people in this country but the next minute you talk about how we can change mm -hmm. that through assimilation yeah which doesn't yeah. make a whole lot of sense to me in the grand scheme of things um also whenever um we just spoke about african-centered education mm -hmm. they're already not really we you know established that they're already not teaching much uh, within the public school system um, as far as, you know, who we are, our origin, not even just our liberation movements and things like right. movements and things like that. We're not really learning anything about ourselves. It's, That's right. it's normally the, the same group of people that they talk about and they water down, uh, you know, those that they do talk about That's such right. as Booker T. Washington, and, right. uh, Dr. Martin Luther King, which is why, you know, there's books like Radical King out that show that Martin Luther King wasn't the Dr. King that uh, the Europeans mm -hmm. present to us. Yeah. Um, so with that said, even still with that, this, one of the hot button terms for this election that was, has been critical race theory. 
<laughs> and these anti-woke laws that they are uh, passing and, uh, you know, uh, banning certain books, uh, you know, from the classrooms, uh, ironically making them bestsellers, right. <laughs> you know, uh, right. ironically. But um, like, what's your thoughts on that? Uh, the whole uh, CRT thing and mm -hmm, mm -hmm. why they are doing it. And, and just to add this as well, the funny thing about it is, the people that are so adamant um, against critical race theory don't really, haven't shown and proven that they know exactly what it is anyway. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, CRT is interesting because um, I think it was on social media that I caught wind of the whole, this, uh, this resistance against CRT. And, you know, people saying they're teaching CRT in the schools. That was always bewildering to me because, you know, I didn't encounter CRT till I was working on my PhD. Right, right. You know, I didn't encounter it in undergrad. Uh, I mean, granted, like, I mean, well, yeah, I didn't encounter it in undergrad. I didn't encounter it when I was working on my master's. I encountered it in, P in the PhD program, and I know some people encountered it in law school. So it's just the weirdest thing to me because CRT is not uh, a part of the curricular canon in, in a lot of ways. Um, but what, what was clear to me uh, is that CRT was being utilize as a, as a as a signifier that is as a symbol or a representative of a curricular orientation of decentered whiteness i mean that was really the essence of it it was just it was just a symbol it was a symbol of that again this curricular orientation that decenters whiteness and what do i mean by that well not only because see for for, for whites um is not you know if you were to teach about the extermination of the indigenous population or the enslavement of African people, or the develop, development of legal covenants in order to facilitate, you know, the subordination of African people. See, yeah, that's about white people, but that's not centering whiteness, right? Because right. whiteness isn't just a curricular orientation or conceptual orientation that is centered upon uh, Europeans, but it's one that valorizes them, right? Mm -hmm. so, so this idea of whiteness is not just based on this sort of racial grouping of white people, but also the the necessary valorization of that group itself. Right, right. So CRT, I think, became a signifier of a uh, curricular orientation that sought to decenter whiteness. Now, what's interesting, you know, unfortunately, you know, we live in America and people have short memories. You know, we, we just watched this episode about 20, 25 years ago in the 90s with all the, the resistance, in the 80s and the 90s with all the resistance to African-centered or Afrocentric education and the later multi- cultural education and some people in fact some people argue that multicultural education was in fact a way of a way of nullifying the Africans in a push mm. in education uh and and I and so I think that this is one of those I call them perennial quandaries mm -hmm. you know this is this one of these things that, that that comes up that will constantly come up why because uh Europeans whether they're explicitly whether they're sort of conscious of it or not I think most of them are, know that this is a settler colony right that their their uh, super that their dominance is predicated upon the subordination of other peoples, right? Uh, and most people who are in a position of power who utilize mental or physical coercion to maintain that power are sensitive to things that challenge that power, mm. you know. And so again, CRT became a necessary specter to invoke. And I think. So I think the question becomes why? Because CRT is not new, right? right. <laughs> we were talking about a right. theoretical framework that Derek Bell started conceptualizing uh, back in the 70s, I believe. Um, 
and and really doesn't enter into even educational discourse meaningfully into the end of the 90s. Uh, and so I think, you know, if you look at what's happening now, you have, you know, very significant demographic shifts. Uh, you had, there, there's a whole lot that I could say about it in, in terms of criticism, but you did have a great deal of visibility of black folks activism around, you know, anti-black violence. You know, again, mm -hmm. there's a lot that could be said about the nature of this activism, but right. I'll, I'll table that for now. Um, you had also, interestingly enough, you know, this, uh, this very interesting mobilization just prior to this in resistance to the expansion of the Keystone XL pipeline by indigenous people. Um, you know, you had these, you know, you have all these things that are happening, which I think for people who are deeply invested in whiteness were reminders of the extent to which their dominion is contested because it's always contested, right? It's always contested. But the way in which a dominant group responds to that contestation is not static, it's dynamic. You know what I'm saying? And so in this particular moment, in this particular historical moment, one of the mechanisms uh, to respond to that contestation was to nullify curricular instruments that sought to decenter whiteness. Mm. Uh, and by making the career, by reinforcing the implicit white nationalism of the curriculum. I should say explicit white nationalism. Right. <laughs> it's not implicit at all. Mm -hmm. And so I think I think that's really all it was. I don't I don't think I I, th I think you know again most of these folks didn't know what CRT was. And I, th I think if they you could have beat them over the head with a book by Derek Bell, they wouldn't know <laughs> what you're dealing with. You know what, what is this? Couldn't point Derek Bell out in the lineup. Exactly, exactly. So it was it really had nothing to do with that. Mm -hmm. It was all about uh, uh, of the resisting the decentering of whiteness and 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 to facilitate the centering of whiteness in a way that furthers uh, European domination. Indeed, indeed. And you spoke of challenging the power. And nowadays we have groups that seem to be more concerned with assimilating to that power. And okay. uh, they are beginning to distance themselves from Africa. They are dis yeah. distancing themselves from the rest of the diaspora, even uh, from the yeah. Caribbean to the UK. And, um, you know, I think about like in the late 50s and 60s and, you know, James Brown, um, Black mm -hmm. and Proud and the cultural mm -hmm. revolution that existed. And you saw images of uh, Malcolm and the Nation of Islam. You saw images of the Black Panther Party. Mm -hmm. um, you saw images um, of different people in Kwame Ture and, you know, different mm -hmm. people and organizations that were on the front line uh, doing the work. Do you think at this moment in 2022 that we are in need of another cultural revolution? You know, without a doubt, um, without a doubt, I think that, um, you know, <clears throat> I think we, and I've been posting a lot on social media the last week or so about the black elite. Mm -hmm. um, and I've been posting mostly quotes by elders or ancestors, you know, I, the last couple of days I've been posting our mob posts up by Anderson Thompson not too long ago. And I've been thinking a lot about Malcolm X, his critique of the black elite. I, I mentioned this because the black elite have been, again, a perennial quandary. They've been a, a, a recurring problem for us. And then I'm mentioning the elite because even though we're talking about what, what appears to be a type of mass of people, a mass of individuals, that mass has been, is, is given direction. That mass is directed uh, along very particular discursive or ideological lines by a particular, by particular individuals who position themselves as, as, as leaders. And, you know, I think one of the problems is that 
the black elite has historically been myopic, been self in, been self interested, and also been driven by by uh, to some extent an incorrect analysis. I say to some extent because some of them they have the correct analysis, but their self interest <laughs> right. their self interest is greater than than that. You know than than what a correct analysis and the types of conclusions that a correct analysis might lead them to. And so I mention that because one of the um, one of the reasons why we need a cultural revolution today, and this is something that Dr. Anderson Thompson would talk about, is that we need a grand vision of the future. Mm. You know, uh, Dr. Thompson defined. He talked. He wrote about this idea, the African principle. He said, "What every African person needs is a is a is a, a grand vision of the future that that seeks to bring about the greatest good for the greatest number of African people, and essentially is focused on you know establishing independent sovereignty for African people." The world over, and fundamental to that is conceptual. The fundamental to that is understanding our historical relationships to each other, as well as our historical relationships to other people. Um, one of the challenges that I think that's that's occurred now is that you have people who are one; they've taken it upon themselves to begin to subdivide African people, and they begin yeah. to reinterpret our history not on the basis of any particular body of empirical data, but simply on the basis of, of ideological fancy, yeah. right? Ideological expediency. Um, because if you, if you engage in a critical analysis of our history, I mean, so like, because I think there are a number of problems, like a number of um, like talking points, let me say that they get articulated. Um, the African sold us, yeah. uh, you know, which, which in and of itself is interesting. Um, Pan-Africanism is a one-way street. Pan, yeah, it's a one-way street. It's <laughs> uh, uh, never accomplished anything. Um, you know, we, every everything, every facet of, of African-American uh, or Black American culture, as they like to say, are things that Black Americans created independent of these other people, or even the most absurd ideas of all that when, you know, our ancestors didn't even come from Africa. Right. They right. grew up out the soil in, in right. Detroit. You know, something, <laughs> something ridiculously <laughs> absurd like that. And so it's very clear that many of us are estranged from our history. And I think that that historical estrangement is, is, is problematic. So when we talk about a cultural revolution, I think about, a lot about this in terms of what happened in the 1960s. You know, you had all these various formations that took form. And especially after, after, after Malcolm's passing, you know, because um, Malcolm X was really the catalyst for the Black Power movement in, in many ways. Um, and, and I would argue many of the ideas that he expressed gave form to probably through some of the major tendencies in the Black Power movement. But one of the things that was very interesting to me when you look at that period is you have this assertion of people that they were African, that we were an African people. And that was, that was not an arbitrary signifier. That was not an arbitrary term. You know, we didn't call ourselves African instead right. of calling ourselves purple. Calling ourselves was, black was controversial at that time. Exactly, exactly. People began to recognize that how we that how we identify ourselves as a people had implications for how we understood ourselves going backwards in time mm. as well as how we understood ourselves going forward in time mm -hmm. any any um ideological discourse any paradigmatic discourse any any discourse pertaining to ideas and ways of understanding the world and analyzing conditions implicitly contains within ways of understanding the past 
Right. He's just situating oneself in a historic, in a, in a particular string of historical continuity, as well as visions or notions of futurity. We were just talking about an example of that, right? Mm -hmm. In the in the imaginary, which issues forth from Negro historiography, the past is one where black people begin in 1619. Uh, that the uh, that the United States is that what what is what becomes the United States is struggling in terms of its own contradictions. That once it becomes in the process of becoming the United States is forced to reconcile with these contradictions hmm. of slavery and freedom, and that upon the inception of the United States as a republic, that struggle is elevated to another level, and we see this incremental progression towards the greater actualization of freedom and that we are presently continuing to strive into a future where we are unfettered by the burdens of the past. That is a partial, a, a, a grossly partial narration of the history of the society that, that negates a fundamental recognition in which America has been at war with African people, right? Uh, and that what America has consistently done is to dance what Dessalines called the phantom of liberty, to parade the phantom of liberty before the eyes of African people in order to facilitate our misinterpretation of the past and as well as our misinterpretation or our distorted notions of futurity. Therein, back in the 1960s, and I would argue before that, during the era of the Garvey movement, there was a consciousness, there was a, a understanding that by recognizing ourselves as, as an African people, that we began to, de that we, situated ourselves within a grand arc of time that did not make us subordinate to uh, our Europeans or the, the whims of European historiography. That we began to see ourselves as historical agents because we began to connect with the, the, the millennia in which we existed in the world unfettered by European domination. And so it gave us a greater conception, a greater conceptual basis upon which to understand ourselves. And I say that very meaningfully because I think a lot of the people that are situated in these movements miss the fact, though some seem to understand it, which is why they fabricate histories, but, but the ones who negate histories, I think also miss the fact that histories are important in terms of us understanding who we are fundamentally. This is why you had, and I was very pleased with this in a lot of ways, even though it has its own limitations, this, the, you know, the, the use of, of black folks using commercial DNA testing services over the last decade or so in order to develop a, a sense of who their ancestry were, because people, you know, they understand that your your notions of the past, your sense of history gives you a sense of who you are, that you're not just the individual inside of that body, yeah. that you are your grandfather and your grandmother, your great grandfather, your great grandmother, your great, you know, all mm -hmm. those, you know, that's why when you find those people who are estranged from some line of their family, the more consciously I have the meaningfulness of that, the more frustrating it is that they are bereft of that knowledge of who their line is. You even find people who have a lot of that knowledge, but they'll be frustrated saying, I don't even you know, but I don't know what part of Africa this person was taken from, mm -hmm. you know? And so, so anyway, when, when our ancestors, or that generation of African people in the 1960s declared themselves an African people, said, we are an African people, they were connecting themselves to a stream of history, stream of history but they were also connecting themselves to a vision of futurity. What vision of futurity of that? It was a vision of futurity where African people were self-determined self -determined and free yeah. because they were looking at the global landscape. They were looking at African people who were fighting in this country. And I don't mean marching and protesting. I mean, people who were building institutions, people who were attempting to create a Republic of New Africa, people who engaged in battles with the police and military forces of this society. But they also looked across the ocean and they saw African people engaged in similar struggles in the African continent. And so the energy of the moment, the electricity that was in the air suggested that if these struggles come to their fruition, that if the aims of these struggles are fully actualized, we will inherit a world where African people are free. Yes. 
I don't mean free as an abstraction, but free because we are sovereign, because we control our future. We feed, clothe, house, defend, educate, medicate, and, and house ourselves, that we are not reliant upon others to provide us either the institutions that are necessary for us to survive or the ideas, the knowledges that are necessary for our survival, but we provide those for ourselves. And so this was a bold declaration, but it was also an intentional declaration. Um, what has happened the intervening years from the 1960s and now rather from the, the well, no, first, the Black Power Movement was violently suppressed. Yes. Right? And it's not just that it was violently, violently suppressed in order to nullify the potentiality for African people engaging in armed struggle in this country, but that was, because that was a part of it, certainly, right? Those raids on the, the Republic of New Africa, or those attacks. The nationalist aspect of- Exactly. Our, yeah, they couldn't, they couldn't handle that. Exactly, exactly. Because that movement was both domestic in terms of various domestic black power formations like the, the Black Liberation Army and the Republic of New Africa and so many others, but it was also international, it was pan-African. Mm -hmm. You know, you had in, in Chicago and many other cities, the African Liberation Support Committee, where people were sending resources to the African continent, wow. where you would have uh, different people who were freedom fighters on the continent, but because things got too hot where they were, they'd be over here. And mm -hmm. they came over here and they engaged in work in the community over here. And so you had this dynamic interchange of African people between the continent, the Caribbean, the United States, and so forth. Um, and so there was very much an international orientation. When you talk to people who were in that movement, who were in the Black Power movement, particularly people who were in groups like the All-African People's Revolutionary Party, or they were in major cities like, like Chicago, New York, and others, you'll find that discourse where they were not just dealing with I'm sorry, where that level of analysis is an international, where it was a global, where not only did they understand that, that pan-African struggle, but they also understand, understood this broader international struggle against imperialism. Um, yes. What's happened to us in the intervening period? You know, you have the violent suppression of the Black Power movement. You have the, the new, you have the mass incarceration and, and uh, the man, and the war on drugs as being a principal instrument of the mass incarceration. You also have this concerted engineering of the culture of Black people in the United States uh, around values antithetical to liberation, or rather values much more centered around uh, uh, neoliberalism, right. uh, mass consumption, uh, hyper-individualism, and, and so on, uh, as well as the evisceration of the economic base of the community, which creates a context where those types of values become much more, more, uh, much more uh, palatable, much more salient, rather than the communalistic values, which are which often seem to be, at least if we look at the United States, seem to be hard to sustain in situations where people are grappling with issues of material scarcity uh, and value and their values is already having been eroded from, from the various types of institutional assaults. You think about the impact of drugs, and, for instance, on our community. So that was, the, that was the world I grew up in in the 80s and 90s, right, in Chicago, mm -hmm. uh, that kind of place. Uh, and I think what, what that, legacy, what that concerted campaign did to us between the 70s, after the Black Power era, into the 80s and the 90s and the 2000s, 2010s, I think what it did is it created a, uh, it created the, the, it created intergenerational discontinuity. Yeah, I, um, I agree. One thing I wanted to uh, add on to that, uh, not to cut your wisdom, is that a line, I think this has to be done. I think this is a concerted effort to, um, get us out of the international thinking, uh, have us separated as a group for the simple fact 
that if you are going to align yourself with America, mm -hmm. you have to do this because then there's no other way to justify America's imperialist efforts all across the world. That's right. There's no, you can't justify it. That's right. That's right. And yeah, so I mean, I really appreciate that you said that. Um, you know, I, it's, it's interesting too because one of the, the most concerted, so let me say this. So one of the tactics that we see right now, because again, you have you have all these different, let's say, discrete activity areas of activity, but I would argue that it, that in many ways they are all interrelated, right? Uh, and I think I think the, the sort of core driver of all these is the nullification of our collective agency. Um, and by that, you know, for instance, our agency is enhanced our capacity to to create, to shape reality is enhanced by virtue of us being unified, by virtue of us being knowledgeable because that knowledge informs tactics, that those tactics inform strategy. When we eschew study, right? And that's, that's, that's something that's going on right now. Mm -hmm. We eschew uh, having a sense of history. Again, we, we um, eliminate our capacity to draw wisdom from the past to inform our action in the present. When we atomize ourselves, and that's the thing that is the most salient feature, the atomization, because you see it all over the place. It's, you know, men against women, yeah. this group of black folks against that group of black folks, this yeah. class of black folks and that class of black folks. Super fragmented, man. Black people that like red from black people that like blue. <laughs> man, it's just stupid stuff. Yeah. You know, yeah. no people who are, who are determined to be free can allow superficial divisions to divide them in such a manner, but nonetheless, the atomization is something, the atomization of black people. Yeah. <laughs> You know what? Hold on one second. Yeah, for sure. I'm waiting for him to answer the phone. <laughs> okay. So the atomization of black people is necessary in order not only to nullify capacity, but also to diminish our ability to really think and conceive of reality in revolutionary ways. Mm -hmm. You know, our, what we think, I mean, just this is a benign example. What we think of, like when we think about just goals in our lives, you know, the things that we can accomplish when we're on our own versus the thing that we can accomplish when we have more resources are often very different. Yeah. Uh, and we encounter this in, in our lives. Well, well, having a community of people, having institutions, having organizations, these are all resources that augments our capacity. And the discourse that is most salient now is not one which compels us to build or to develop strategy or to intelligently analyze and, and uh, engage with the situation before us, but to retreat from that. Mm -hmm. and to embrace American, uh, uh, American hegemony. And, and you see that on, on two interesting extremes. Right. On one extreme, you see those people who are the sort of advocates of a, of, of a vulgar atomization, mm -hmm. right? So the, everyone from the divestors to these, these various people who have their, these acronyms about their lineage, you know, and, and, and their mm -hmm. domestic lineage and things of that sort. Yeah. I, I would consider those people on sort of this expressions of this more these most vulgar vulgar uh expression of those vulgar aspects of this uh this prostration before american mm -hmm. uh imperialism and american dominance 
on the other end of the continuum, you have those who are who are champions for the American uh, political system. You know, these are the ones who are constantly encouraging us, you know, to uh, what do they say? Vote is you know, vote, vote for that person or vote for that person. Mm-hmm. You know, to embrace this particular party over that particular party, this party's platform or this candidate over that party's candidate. In both instances, in neither instance, in either of these positions, again, the the vulgar one. Uh, and I'm calling it the vulgar one because many of the much of the language, you know what I'm yeah. saying, much of the the disengagement from from ideas, from from even study and reflection, it's, it's all, often very visible here. Here, this one often presents itself as being more refined, as being more, as being more logical, mm-hmm. uh, but it's still, but it also just like this one reflects a, a myopia, that is, uh, a profound lack of vision uh, about what's possible. Uh, but both of them encourage us to see not only a narrative of ourselves that essentially is subordinate to or subject to or situated or derivative from the stream of European history, right. um, but also a future for ourselves, which is subject to American domination. Yeah. Uh, it's maddening and it's it madness. It really, it really is. And so we start talking about, you know, we talked about ACE and, uh, you know, African-centered education and talked about, you know, being in need of a cultural revolution. Um, what, you know, when it comes to rediscovering our, who we are, um, and our origin in this world, before we, before we talk about what that looks like, can you tell us how did, how we got there? Um, Mm -hmm. how Mm -hmm. did we lose our mind? (laughs) Yeah. 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 That's a, (laughs) that's a powerful (laughs) question. Um, I think slavery did a couple of important things, a couple of very powerful things uh, to us. And and again, when I when I say this, I'm, I'm saying it with with the recognition that all of the things that I'm going to mention occur to varying degrees uh, of effectiveness, right? So for everything that enslavement did to us, in some places it w- those effects were greater, in some places those effects were lesser, mm-hmm. and there were always individuals, as, as Mali Mushuja says, who always had the capacity to see through insight. I mean, to see through nonsense right. and, you know, and to develop critical insights based on uh, a striving for liberation. So on one hand, enslavement disrupted the traditional bonds, our traditional bonds. Uh, if you think about the types of communities that our ancestors built, uh, those bonds and those communities were an important element of reinforcing a sense of who we are. Mm-hmm. Um, Again, in the traditional African context, identities were very much ground in, in one's connection to a particular collective. And that collective wasn't just the people that were on the earth at that point, but it was also those people who had existed in the past. Uh, those, those bonds also carried with them certain types of obligations. And so the very organization of community and the, the work, the tasks, the, 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 um, the activities that were necessary to maintain community was also bound up in that those social bonds. Enslavement, in effect, uh, um, attempted to destroy those bonds uh, and to impose, impose new a new type of, of social relations within the context of um, within the context or oh, under the aegis rather of European domination. Uh, another effect was that it disrupted our, our collective uh, purpose. You know, um, it's, it's really interesting. Like when you read uh, like the historical accounts about uh, or the organization of life in traditional African societies, 
One which is very interesting to me is like many African cultures had beliefs in destiny and some even notions of predestination, right? Um, like among the Akan, you would have this idea of an inkrabia. Inkrabia uh, would be this, this idea of one's, one's purpose that one uh, uh, derives from the creator, right? This is this notion of purpose that one has from the divine itself. And so your purpose in life is to discover and fulfill such a purpose. Uh, and you have similar ideas among other African peoples, among the Yoruba, the Igbo, and so forth. Well, one of the things that's implicit within that, within this idea that you have a purpose, is that members of the community, your life would be organized around the discovery and the actualization of that. Our names would speak to that. Mm. You know, mm. So if you were born in this particular community and they gave you this particular name, that name would either tell you something about the circumstances of the birth, or it might tell you something, or the, or the family or the community at that time, or it might tell you something about your purpose, you know, the path that you were supposed to walk. But what enslavement does is essentially, is it disrupted our sense of both individual and collective purpose mm. and imposed a new type of purpose. And, and essentially that purpose was one consistent with European domination. Right. Um, enslavement also destroyed our institutional capacity. Uh, if you think about the, um, you know, if you think about traditional African societies, and I mean everything from societies that existed as small rural communities, what people call villages, to empires, one of the key elements of how life was organized in those societies is that people strove to be self-sustaining and self-sufficient. Does it mean that they had absolutely everything they needed for themselves? Not necessarily because it was commerce, it was trade, often between communities. But ultimately, however, communities, uh, and in particular, especially in the case of larger societies, function in a way where they attempted to sustain themselves. So when I talked about those six types of institutions, all of those levels were operational at all times. Well, in the context of enslavement, that institutional infrastructure was negated, mm. right? Uh, instead, Europeans uh, situated African people within the context of their institutional apparatuses for the sake of utilizing our mental, physical, spiritual energies for the sake of building the institutions. And we're, we're still doing that today. And some of us, are, some people are encouraging us to do more of that, right. continue to give of ourselves to the people that dominate us. And then also I would say that enslavement delinked us again from this stream of historical uh, possibility that we, uh, you, you know, if you, if you consider, for instance, I mean, you have many communities on the African continent where there's a strong oral tradition mm -hmm. and that oral tradition will tell the history of the society or the history of a, of a particular lineage and the like. It becomes very difficult in the Americas for, in, in, for people to hold on to that. Right. Again, people do hold on to certain things in different places. You know, again, you know, I say these things are vary, variable. Like, you know, there's a there's a lot of interesting literature that's that's out these days. Uh, there's one book uh, about the Malagasy. Uh, I think it's called Memories of Madagascar. And what's interesting is that the author argues that you actually have these African American families that retain this memory mm. of, of their connection to the to uh, Madagascar. In fact, my Kabwaita teacher. He has that in his family that wow. they have a connection to Madagascar. I want to see another Kaporista I know who also has it in their family where they they know that they have this connection to Madagascar. Wow. Uh, you know, and, and when you go to Brazil, of course, there's this and, and Cuba also and, and Puerto Rico, I guess, in a way as well, it's sort of very strong sense of connection to the Yoruba, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and and so um but to a to to a large degree. One of the key uh, uh, psychological objectives of enslavement was to create a disjuncture in time where the African person existed in the present, in the present, delinked from their own past. Yes. Rather, they are subordinated to the past of European history. Right. You have to think about how bizarre that is. 
Hmm. So you have a stream of history. This is African history. Mm -hmm. This is European history. Both of these streams, let's say these streams are moving parallel. Let's say, you know, they intersect at different point, but for the most part, these are two different streams of history. And then you have the African stream disrupted, and then it's, it's appended to the European. <laughs> Therefore, our present and future becomes subordinated to the forward mm. flow of European history. That's powerful wow. and diabolical. Wow. So, so slavery, you know, had those effects. Um, and, and, and so in the process, what it, what it gives us is it gave, it gave us a falsified consciousness. You know, it gave us a, a distorted sense of who we are, that, that it compelled us to see ourselves and everything about us ourselves through the lens of another people, mm. right? Um, and so our center, the center of the very center of our being is in situated within the European paradigm. Right. And so whether that's, uh, us viewing, I mean, I'm always still fascinated today when I kind of black people who are, are, are engaged in missionary work. It was this really funny I post on Twitter. It, yeah. yeah, I know <laughs> it was a crazy post on Twitter. Like a couple of months ago, this sister was talking about, you know, like decolonizing missionary work. I saw that. Like, go read Things Fall Apart <laughs> for me. Like, please. Like, I saw that. Like, that is literally one of the tools of colonization. Go ahead. <laughs> crazy. <laughs> that's, that's crazy. crazy. Yeah. And that's, that's, that's the false consciousness. Yeah. You know, yeah. we're seeing the world through the eyes of, of Europeans. Yeah. You're engaging in a European cultural enterprise, and you don't know you're engaging in a European yeah. enterprise. Yeah. That's... That's powerful. And, you know, of course, it also um, it facilitated, again, this is kind of an echo of the previous point, uh, our, our, you know, our cultural misorientation. That is, it, it rein, the, the way we were socialized and the way we have been socialized since, you know, since our, the capture of our ancestors mm -hmm. has constantly sought to enforce the legitimacy of the existing system. And so during the era of enslavement, the, the sense of legitimacy would be enforced with this idea in some cases, it would be through the use of, of theological uh, 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 weapons, right? Mm -hmm. That this is the will of God. You know? Right. You can argue with God. Yeah. <laughs> right. We got to toil. Mm -hmm. I guess we got to toil. Obviously, some people would see through this nonsense, but you know, some people would be susceptible to it. In in the era after enslavement, of course. Well, well, and also, of course, for some people, they would be given material inducements, mm -hmm. right? Uh, maybe they'd be given uh, a higher and elevated status among certain groups of people, additional privileges above certain people. They're still captured themselves, they're still enslaved themselves, they're still subordinate themselves, but they see themselves as in part perhaps a material beneficiary of this oppressive enterprise. In the era of after, in the era after enslavement, we see many of those same tools. Uh, being, well, we see some, some of those same tools, but we see tools that are applied for similar purposes. And so this long, you know, Harold Cruz talks about these two streams of black thought, the nationalist stream and the integrationist stream. The nationalist stream is the stream that wants black people to be free, sovereign, mm. our own society, independent of anyone, you know, unperturbed uh, by people who loathe us. Uh, and that stream is characterized by people from like Martin Delaney and, yes. and what's Marcus Garvey and, mm. and Malcolm X and so many others. And then you have the integrationist stream. Mm. The integrationist stream is a stream that is, Washington is yeah, exactly. It's the stream that is uh, ever hopeful mm. of, of America's potential to live up to its ideals. Right. Now, you no matter how many black people we have to sacrifice on the altar of American progress, uh, we're going to sacrifice them black people. 
<laughs> our commitment to this, this idea. And so one of the things that happens in the era of African enslavement is that the integrationist stream, again, continues to reinforce then uphold this notion of legitimacy of the existing order. And we see a lot of that happening today, especially around, you know, every time Black people are encouraged to to take part in or to speak out or to participate in invariably is never to take part in revolution to participate right. in building institutions for independence and sovereignty to to take part in you know the work of liberating african people is always to take part in some enterprise that is ostensibly focused on the reform of the society again it's the phantom of liberty you know what happens you chase mm -hmm. phantoms uh and then finally um yeah. And so anyway, yeah, the process of enslavement ultimately was focused not only on transforming our minds, but also transforming our relations to each other, our relations to others, our relations to institutions, but ultimately our relationship to our own power. Right. Because you know, again, the potentiality of African people as a collective, rather than being directed towards our own well-being, our own future, is then directed towards, towards others. And so I, the last thing I'll say is that if you think about uh, if you think about, um, Malana Karinka has this, uh, this, he lays out these seven areas of culture, which can see which are history, social organization, political organization, economic organization, spirituality, creative production, the ethos, argue that you could apply that also to the different types of, uh, attacks, you know, different types of, of misorient, of, of, uh, distortions of African consciousness, which occurred during that period. So in terms of history, again, you had the erasure or the attempted erasure of historical memory, uh, whether that historical memory was ethnic uh, or familial or even racial, that is this memory of, of the historic historicity of black people. And instead, you know, you find it's really interesting, right? You, you find uh, the sort of mythic ancestors of an imposed religion become the ancestors of yeah, life, yeah. you know, and you, and you see a lot of people, you know, that's that's like the avant garde of, of, of radicalism in their mind today. And then, you know, anyway, uh, you have, again, the disruptions of, of social, the traditional patterns of social life, as well as things, as well as institutions. Uh, and that was a fundamental assault because, again, institutions relate to the structural capacity for people. Um, in terms of political organization, you had the attempt by Europeans to monopolize the use of physical force. Because mm. uh, Europeans recognize the importance of violence. Oh, yeah. you so use copious amounts of violence against us and always have. Uh, they recognized the capacity of violence as a way to affect their will, but what they attempted to do, in, in, both in enslavement and now, is to monopolize the use of violence. Right. Now, of course, some of our people figure this out, like, oh, you can use violence, we can use violence too, you know, and, and so you don't have a monopoly on force. And of course, Europeans found out, you know, um, that, that they too. Right. <laughs> Anybody can get it. <laughs> Anybody can get it. They didn't want to get it, you know. Um, but but part of one of the things that they were very much concerned about is socializing us into an idea, into the belief that mm. only their use of physical force was legitimate, that only their use of violence was acceptable. Even today, that idea persists. Yeah, it does. You can do that. It's why Black people are compelled to forgive. Mm. You know, there are peoples around the world who they don't, they're not compelled to forgive when things happen to them. But, uh, um, black people in America are. And we, we've seen this plenty of times where uh, we know, like, brothers or know of brothers, hey, when it comes to, when it's time to get gangster, they with whatever. But when it's time to exhibit that same type of yep. violence against them, yes. I, we can't do that. Exactly. You exactly. know? Yeah. And also, whenever you um, spoke about uh, streams of consciousness, it made me think of, 
and ours being interrupted and then ours, I thought that was brilliant, and then ours being latched on to theirs. Uh, it reminds me of like when uh, Richard Allen in Philadelphia was mm -hmm, in, mm -hmm. you know, he was going to church with uh, Europeans, but he had his, he had his, you know, Absalom Jones and uh, some of his brothers and sisters there and mm -hmm. they were Methodists and yeah. they uh, eventually, you know, they started facing discrimination within that white church. Yeah. Um, they weren't having it. They left. And yeah. so they began to build their own. Those same Methodists um, told them that, hey, unless you let us run your church, um, <laughs> you can't call yourself a Methodist. Mm. And so they end up obviously building uh, Mother Bethel uh, AME Church. Yeah. Uh, I'm not a Christian, but, you know, it's a beautiful church. And I respect yeah. everything that they've done for the community. But yeah. the idea of being, this is still operating within that European paradigm. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's not like yeah. Richard Allen said, okay, you're kicking me out this church. I'm about to create a, a hoodoo. Um, it wasn't that. And I think that over the over the years, um, I mean, we've this is generational and mm -hmm, each mm -hmm. generation adds on to it. When we talk yep. about generational curses, that's yep. the generational curse. Yep. Is that we keep adding on to the disillusionment we keep adding on to uh, we and we keep distancing ourselves further and further away from our own traditions and our own right. customs i have right. a conversation a lot about um you know different religious aspects of our uh culture and how um some may see it as spookism right mm -hmm. but mythology is important mm -hmm, mm -hmm. to have your own mythos you know i think a lot uh elijah muhammad understood that right mm -hmm, to mm -hmm, have your own mm -hmm. mythos that's mm -hmm. blackness um whether you take it literal or, or whether you don't yeah um, it allows you to recenter yourself whether it's new or old right yeah, yeah. recenter yourself in something that is black and beneficial to you yeah. Instead of, I feel like a lot of times we, like, so you know the saying, and it's true. Everything, we, I mean, any even if it's not ours to begin with, we make it better, right? And we become right. the <laughs> best at it. Um, right. But we don't right. always have to do that. We right. can yes. we can embrace our own, and and to be honest with you, let them have it or let it die. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it is what it is. Um, you stated uh, earlier, you know. Um, uh, the influence of learning from Dr. Jacob Carruthers and others, how how much it influenced you and helped you mm -hmm. to, to get uh, to where you are. Um, and being uh, an academic yourself and going through the rigors of, you know, getting your PhD, obviously it's not an easy thing. Um, and then, so, you know, we get it to this point now where in academia, it seems <laughs> like, a lot of our academics are <laughs> on that on on that assimilation kick. Yeah. And yeah. Like, and so what are your thoughts about that? And what do you think the role of black academia should be? 
Yeah, yeah. Let me let me say this, and I want to, and I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna link this to the thing you were just talking about, right? I mean, like this that whole thing about spirituality is a really profoundly powerful one, because what what spiritual thought or, or religious thought attempts to do is attempt to explain reality. You know, it's interesting too because I I've, I've been thinking about this a lot. I'm sure you saw those images from the James Webb Space Telescope. Yes. Mm -hmm. uh, really wonderful, you awesome, know. Right? Uh, you know, I think it's it's a very interesting thing to me, and I've, I've thought about this for a while, how, like, Western science has been particularly potent in terms of its capacity to explain, say, the the, the structural mechanics of the universe. Mm -hmm. But but science, Western science generally is insufficient at dealing with another quandary, which is a fundamental uh, dynamic of human existence, which is to, to, you know, deal with questions of meaning. Exactly. You know? I was going to say the same thing. Yeah, I think I think that's I think that's those are two things that in this context they fall under the purview of either philosophy or religion or spirituality. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of interesting that again, that same generation of folks in the 1960s, like they 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 got that. Mm -hmm. you no, know, so it's interesting, right? Because in the 19th century, again, the solution for black people in the, in the United States, because again, it's different things happening in Brazil and Cuba and other places, mm -hmm. but in the United States, part of the, the question becomes uh how do we develop uh you know black churches right. right you know marcus garvey took that a step further well i know can't say he took it a step further because you really you have people like bishop henry you know bishop henry mcneil turn in the 19th century oh yeah very much a nationalist oh yeah and a, and a, and a, a Christian. god is a negro exactly god is a negro mm -hmm. and i think marcus garvey took that and 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 built on that mm. but it's really not to the 1950s and 60s, where you get people moving beyond that framework fundamentally and saying, well, what are these indigenous African spiritual traditions? And uh, and and so that those things begin to take hold. And so it's interesting because even Dr. Carruthers, Jacob H. Carruthers dealt with that, you know, and, you know, and built, you know, one of the institutions he built, the Temple of the African Community of Chicago, mm -hmm. which is focused on this. And, and one of the things that's interesting is that the um, Temple of the African Community of Chicago has uh, seven principles of African spirituality. And, and in addition to things like, um, you know, developing, grounding, you know, dealing with African ethics and values and grounding people in the, in the sense of the African worldview, but also African nationalism, African liberation. Yeah. And, and I think the reason why this becomes important, and there was a, the brother Talawa, uh, said this somewhere on a, an old post on Facebook, I want to say, that what African spirituality does is it connects African people with a complete ontology, a total ontology. It's not an ontology where we have to, we have to append ourselves. You know, we have to sort of attach or we have to reinterpret it on the basis of, of, of the fact that we are Black. Uh, I remember I was, I was on YouTube and I saw these videos by these Black folks who were talking about the, how like the founder of their particular religion, what he said about Black people, and I'm like, that's great. It was great that he had positive things to say. You know, that's that's always good. But, you know, if we were talking about, if we were dealing with something that was black from its yeah. inception, mm -hmm. we wouldn't, be, you know, that that conversation would be irrelevant. So, like, I think about that. And you, they are fortunately the number of people engaged in African spirituality have a good sense to oh, yeah. mm -hmm. to see them as tools of nationalism. But, but you know, Dr. Carruthers, he would talk about the role of black intellectuals a lot. You know, and, and unfortunately. I mean, I think we had to be honest that unfortunately a lot of black academics are are, are mercenaries. Mm. And uh and if they're not mercenaries, some of them are um 
you know, some of them aspire to be generals, you know, in the intellectual armies of those who are opposed to African humanity. And that's deeply problematic. And so I think that, you know, Jacob H. Ruthers would talk about the importance of being an intellectual maroon, yeah. that we should embrace intellectual maroonage. Well, what does that mean? Uh, one of the things that we find, uh, and you see, one of the things that we find, we find that, that Black intellectuals who embrace uh, the European paradigm, who embrace, uh, who, whose work is situated within not only the, the, the paradigmatic frameworks of Europeans, but the very idiomatic discourse of Europeans. They say what they're supposed to say. They write about what they're supposed to write about. They frame certain issues the way they're supposed to frame them, right? That, that engage in this type of ritual performance of, of, uh, of prostration before European domination. Mm -hmm. uh, intellectual maroonage is the opposite of that, right? So the intellectual maroon is the person who they throw their lot in with the masses of African people. Mm -hmm. And they may write things, so their, their work may be intellectually compelling, but it may not be celebrated in the academy. Right, right. right. They may not get any research awards for what they write. Right. You know, they may not get jobs at the top universities either, uh, but it's because they made the choice to throw their lot in with the people and to deal fundamentally with the key challenge of facilitating the process of knowledge production in the interests of African people. And that's a serious thing. When I talk about mercenaries, what I mean is that you have many African uh, academics who are um, their careerists. You know, so yeah, they're looking they're, for tenure. They're, 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 I'm sorry. They said they're looking for tenure. Exactly. Yeah. And so their actions, the intellectual productivity, everything is driven by their own personal interest. Um, I mean, I think, you know, if we look at this from an African worldview, there's no separation of the interests of the collective from the interests of the individual. Right. Like what's in my best interest is the best interest of African people. Right. If we don't have the capacity to feed ourselves, then my capacity to feed myself is by extension of that undermined. If we don't have the capacity to ensure that we are not the victims of violence by people that hate us, then my very physical safety and the safety of everyone that I love is in threat, is under threat. And so like, we have to understand our reality in those terms. And I think also Dr. Grothers would argue that, you know, the black intellectual, he writes about this in as they call black intellectuals on the crisis of black education. That, that the black intellectual has to commit themselves to both to this interrelated process of, of Africanization and transformation. Mm -hmm. you know, he says that essentially you have too many black intellectuals who have been telling us too, they've been trying to convince us to live with the alligators. They're trying to explain how do you live with the alligators rather than how do we drain the swamp? Mm -hmm. You know, why are we right. trying to live with the alligators? We can drain the swamp, solve that problem. Right. And, and, and what it illustrates is unfortunately many, uh, black academics in the, again, their embrace, not only the European paradigm, but by extinction, the inevitability and inescapability, uh, the constancy of European dominion, right? This idea that European domination exists and no other possible reality can be brought into being absent that, uh, short of that. Uh, therefore, we should do what is expedient, right? Which is to, you know, uh, uh, um, follow uh, the, you know, um, align ourselves with that interest. But the, the, the other way that we look at this, if we commit ourselves to Africanization and transformation, then we commit ourselves to, to difficult work, but we commit ourselves to work in community with African people, attempting to undo the ill effects of, of this socialization process, which we have been subjected to, but also building the requisite structures in our community, which enables us to be free. And that's, that's you know, that's uh, for many people, that's, uh, that's challenging work. Um, I, think, I think that we should be honest. I think, you know, all black intellectuals have to be critically asked themselves, uh, 
what is the conceptual basis of the work, the ideation that they engage in, the knowledge production they engage in, what is the conceptual basis of that? Mm -hmm. uh, is that work grounded in assumptions of reality predicated upon the historical worldview of African people? You know, unfortunately, Europeans have told us that their way of seeing the world is universal, and many of us have uncritically accepted that. Why? Right. Uh, there are a myriad of possible answers to all the quandaries that face us that reside in the purview of other cultures. Mm -hmm. Yet Europeans insist that their worldview, a worldview which has started to destroy the world, uh, is universal. Perhaps we should look elsewhere for our answers. Uh, and I think also what it, what it reveals, what, what I would argue is that the problem with this type of myopia is that it, um, I would argue the, the dominant paradigm is, is fundamentally insufficient to enable us to, to dismantle it. You know, Dr. Crothers writes about this in his essay, Science and Oppression. You know, um, you actually have black intellectuals. He talks about that. He wrote this essay back in 72, I want to say. You know, you got black intellectuals who are, who are convinced that only by, only by operating within the context of European knowledge systems, knowledge systems and knowledge production, will we develop the requisite knowledge to even improve conditions of African people? But he says, well, when you consider that those knowledge systems were devised in the interest of control, of oppression, <laughs> of exploitation, and then it says fundamentally what those knowledge systems have been organized for and what they've been organized around, and that ultimately we want to achieve a different set of objectives and we need to start from the foundation of a different set of knowledges. And that's, that, again, it's difficult work. A lot of people don't want to do that work. Hmm. A lot of people uh, may not see the necessity of that work, but I would argue that it's ultimately uh, necessary. Again, if, if we're concerned about you know, being free, you know, not as an abstraction, but having the structural capacity to determine our future, control our lives in every form that is being sovereign. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And I think that's one of the reasons, you know, Walter Rodney has to be studied because, yes, sir. you know, he, uh, as a professor, he didn't care about, he, he said it out of his own mouth. He didn't care about, you know, uh, just, being a part of the establishment and what the yeah, other yeah. people were doing, he after 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 work was over, he was he was in the hood and yeah, and yeah. teaching and learning and teaching and learning, you know. Right. Um, with with that said, um, as far as the you know the role of academia, um, a lot of black academics push heavy on uh, you know being a part of the political process. Um, now, I do think that there are things that through the political process can make our lives a little bit easier on a day-to-day -day mm -hmm. basis. But the question is, can liberation be gained through the political process? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's, 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 that's an important one. That's an important question. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm a, I vote, you know, I'm, a, I'm an advocate for voting. Mm-hmm. Uh, but by no mean, by no stretch of the imagination do I see voting as something that can deliver liberation. I don't even think voting, white folks can't even vote themselves into a, a better condition in this society. Yeah, right, right, right. They're not going to vote their way into universal health. <laughs> point. Vote their way into free higher education. <laughs> vote their way into... A UBI. <laughs> right. Man, please. White folks can't even vote their, their way into a better condition for themselves. <laughs> we ain't going to vote ourselves into a self-determination sovereignty. That's not going to happen. And, and I think, you know, whereas I think that acknowledgement itself is important, the problem is that for a lot of Black folks, um, for a lot of Black folks, voting, that is, 
participation within the existing political system becomes the most becomes the singular expression of or the singular yeah the singular expression of our capacity to act in our interests as a people well well that that presumes then that that reasoning presumes that our interests as a people are somehow aligned with the interests of some you know some political party which is subsidized by multinational corporations it's mm-hmm. obscene it's an right. absurd idea mm-hmm. like when how mm-hmm. how does the interest of the masses of African people align with the interests of a political organization which is backed by by multinational mm-hmm. corporations? A corporate, a cor- what is it? A corporatocracy? Yeah, or, yeah, know, yeah. I mean, it's it's to the point now where politicians are. We obviously see their if you like because I was looking up the other day just one of just for my own uh, you know curiosity. about you know looking at gas prices and how much some of these politicians were making from all all companies annually and it's like man this is right up their alley you know like their best interest is their pockets and maintaining their power right Um, and so if it's not about us um not at all i was watching uh one of your videos and uh it was uh it was very powerful i thought you were dealing with some um, really heavy concepts. And uh, you stated that the most successful models of rebellion uh, comes from the disagreement of cultural logic that equates servitude with normality and the mm-hmm. re-engagement with cultural logic and sur- and, survi- and the survival paradigm of African culture. Yeah. Uh, that's a mouthful. That's Yeah, yeah. If you can, explain that. Yeah, so this idea of... of um... So like the idea of survival paradigm, it was an idea, actually, Baba Hannibal introduced me to that, Baba Hannibal Afrique. Uh, but, but as I was reading, I think he I think, I think think he may have got introduced uh, to that concept by Kobe Combine, mm-hmm. you know, uh, who also had a Chicago, who also, you know, had a Chicago connection, right? Uh, and Kobe Combine writes about that. I don't know if he writes about that in his African personality book or if he writes about that in Cultural Misrange. I think it's African personality. Mm-hmm. You know, and uh, but but he talks about this. So the idea is that the survival paradigm is the way in which cultures see fundamentally their relationship to the universe, right? You know, so so for instance, if you look at at, at Europeans from ancient times to now, right, the survival paradigm is one where plunder, uh, conquest, a necessary means in order to ensure the acquisition of the good life, right, right. And so we build human prosperity on the backs of those whom we subjugate. Subjugate. Uh, that's the survival paradigm. Mm-hmm. And so we see that survival paradigm operating from the Roman Empire <laughs> yeah. to America, yeah. right? The survival paradigm of Europeans. Um, whereas the African survival paradigm is, is is different. Again, do you have empires? Did you have empires in the African continent? Yes. The African societies wage war against each other. Yes. But this idea of, of war and subjugation as an inter, as an industry, as a cultural industry, as an as an ethos, the ethos of a people, I would argue that those things were not constants in the African milieu. Um, that instead, if you look, and, and Fouquier writes about this very masterfully, particularly in his book Mbongi, uh, that you find a different you find a conceptualization around how do we optimize our relationships with other human beings in the environment in many African cultures and these values uh, these values expressing how we exist in the world mm. well 
So when we talk about this idea of cultural logic, right? So that's that survival paradigm, but this idea of cultural logic. You know, like one of the challenges is that we are inundated with language. I appreciate that you mentioned the, the, yeah. the piece, the political piece, but it's democracy, progress, rights, capitalism, freedom, equality, all of these terms are terms that we encounter all the time. And in the dominant society, all those ideas are, are defined in certain ways. In some cases, those definitions are articulated explicitly. In some cases, those definitions are much more implicit, right? Where no one says very clearly what these things mean. It's kind of like, you know, when you're younger, you watch the commercial and the commercial is about some product, but nothing in the commercial has anything to do with the product. Well, why do they do this? It's so that you associate the, this product with this its body area of activity. Therefore, the meaning of this product is somehow bound up in this body of social activity, which is being juxtaposed to it. And so one of the things that that ideas are, you know, that happens in terms of systems of cultural logic is that ideas, uh, that the ideas are given meaning, uh, particularly, or terms rather, they take on idea, they take on, uh, they begin to, idea of terms, let me start over. Mm -hmm. Terms signify specific ideas, as well as particular patterns of institutional activity, right? And so when we're bound up in the cultural logic of, of, of of other people, we begin to understand reality through their term, through their conceptual frameworks. So, and this is why, again, I've been very deliberate about, again, when I talk about liberation, I'm not talking about an abstraction, I'm talking about our capacity to be sovereign because this idea of liberation is taking on, it's become a signifier. And for many black folks, and this is not something that's novel, this goes back pretty far in the past, freedom for black people, the liberation for black people has taken on the meaning of reform of the mm -hmm. existing system and yeah. black people being able to take part in the spoils of empire. Right. I'm not sure if that is a reasonable conception of black liberation. I'm not even sure that's the conception of black liberation that the masses of our ancestors would have strove for, mm -hmm. particularly the ones that recognize that their subordination, uh, that they were subordinated by the very same empire which subordinates other peoples yeah. here and around the world. Right. You know, um, so, so one of the issues is that we can't free ourselves on the basis of an alien paradigm, which is why the cultural logic of the oppressor is inherently problematic. You have many people attempting to free themselves on the basis of an alien paradigm, but what you do is you put yourself in another type of trap, right? Mm -hmm. you put yourself in a different type of trap because now you are situated in uh, a particular set of systems or ideas which sustains and which prolongs that domination. There's a paper that I published about this back in December I think it was, it was last fall at any rate, about language and how language keeps us locked into particular sets of conceptual frameworks. Uh, and it's, it's really only when we sort of decouple ourselves from that way that you realize language becomes signifiers, they become anchors of the economic and political interests of European domination. That's why you see Europeans investing in the propagation of French and Portuguese and English on the African continent, wow. maintaining those languages, which is anomalous mm -hmm. because in Asia, you know, with the exception, and there are exceptions to this, but if you look at a country like Indonesia, they're not still speaking Dutch. Right. Not still right. speaking Dutch. But you go to Ghana, they're still speaking English. Mm -hmm. You go to Cote d'Ivoire, they're still speaking French. And so um, one of the things that the alien, that the, that the oppressed, that the cultural logic of the oppressor does is it legitimizes the existing order. And again, I've talked about this already. So when you subscribe to their cultural logic, you see reality in their terms and, and the cultural logic of the, the oppressor inherently legitimizes that, that, that social order. So for us, inevitably, the alternative that, to that has to be based on an African worldview. That is, 
And Cabral talks about this, mm-hmm. the importance of recognizing the difference between your culture and the culture of your oppressor, the impossibility of struggling against an oppressor w- with whom you shared a culture. A lot of people, I think, don't understand like the significance or the import of this. If I am struggling for the same thing as my enemy, then we're not really struggling against each other. Not mm-hmm. really. We're just struggling over who's going to be take the lead mm-hmm. in this broader enterprise that we're equally invested in. It's like Anderson Thompson defines white supremacy as the struggle among Europeans for who among them would dominate the world. Right. So he doesn't see the struggle between, let's say, the British and the French or the American or the United States and the Soviet Union as being struggles or you have these fundamental demarcations of particular social political interests. No, he saw those interests as, as broad, more broadly being interests in the, you know, being a struggle for world domination. Mm-hmm. And you have different groups of Europeans who want, simply want to assert themselves. They want to take themselves to the front of the line, essentially. Right, right, right. Themselves to the front of the line. But they're not engaged in fundamental struggles against themselves because they're collectively in agreement mm-hmm. that the domination of the world by Europeans mm-hmm. is the enterprise in which they should be engaged. And it's mm-hmm. simply a question of who among them will prove, uh, will demonstrate that, that capacity to do so. And so for, you know, Cabral, when he talks about this idea of delinking oneself from the culture, from, from the culture of one's enemy, that you can't struggle against them and share their cultures because if you share that culture, you're struggling for the same thing. Therefore, you're not struggling at all. Yeah. Not going to struggle to throw off the yoke of your enemy's domination if you believe in that system of domination. What you're going to do is you're going to throw off the people that are running it so you can run it, so you can keep the system of domination going. And if we have to be careful, because that's, again, the orientation of the black elite. Um, also, um, when we bra- embrace a cultural logic which is distinct from that of the enemy, it provides us with a set of conceptual frameworks and tools uh, which enables us to free ourselves from the mental fetters that this condition imposes upon us. Um, you know, when we, those mental fetters constrain our imagination. You know, we, we you have all of these black people, uh, again, who embrace this idea of democracy and democratization. Uh, I mean, we live in what's called a democratic society. If, if, the, if the United States isn't the proof of, of the um, limitations, of such a system and the inherent and the imperatives of us looking for an alternative model. I'm not sure what else, you know, could, what could more effectively demonstrate that, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Mbongi, what Fukia writes about an Mbongi is not an African democracy. Mm-hmm. It is an African system of governance predicated upon mass participation. Mm-hmm. I would argue that it is the type of system that one creates when one is truly interested in empowering people. I think what the West has demonstrated to us is that democracy is a system of governments designed to create the illusion among the masses of the people that they have a, capa- a role to play in the governance of the society, when in fact, that governance process is stewarded by the society's elite, the society's dominant classes. And so again, when we embrace this idea of democracy as the signifier of, of a progress or progressive governance, we are really disengaging from the reality which is before our eyes. And also we're denying ourselves the opportunity of looking at an African model that could give us an alternative. And we could do this in a lot of ways. We could talk about economics. We could talk about spiritual practice. We could talk about, um, you know, our, our conceptions of, of, of institution development, whatever the case may be. But when we're invested in the cultural logic of Europeans, we're basically engaged, we're basically committed to that cultural enterprise, right? And you cannot free yourself from an adversary if you simply want to take part or integrate yourself into that enterprise. It just doesn't work like that. Right. You know, at best you are at the very worst, you no, I'm sorry, 
minimally you're attempting to in, participate within that process, that enterprise, that dominant system. At the very worst, you're attempting to become the dominator yourself. You're attempting yeah. to become the dominant strata, the elite strata within that system. And if we, again, if we look around us, I think it's apparent that that many, and again, those two popularities that I mentioned earlier, like sort of the vulgar Americanist and the more the seductive Americanist uh, in the black community, uh, you have one, and I would argue the vulgar group is the one they're really attempting to, so just sort of embed, so they just want their little piece, they're, 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 they want some imperial crumbs. Mm -hmm. And you have that other group, the more seductive ones, who, who you know, maybe they, I don't think they want to necessarily, they want to take the helm of the pie, but they certainly wouldn't mind being in the bridge in the command room, you know, and yeah, yeah, sure. that's being sailed on the seas of global domination, you know. Right. That that happened in Liberia, you know, when that ACS and uh, you know some of the first families that went over there. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. An American yeah. bond state. Yes, and sir. Subjugating the natives. Yep. Became you know uh, rich merchants and mm -hmm. in the bourgeoisie life, you know. And, yes. And yes. That in my opinion, is the reason the experiment failed, you know. Yeah. Um, and obviously now, you know, you have brothers uh, whose lineage comes back here and then, you know, uh, that are there now who are working to change that. But, you know, in the beginning, you know, just reading about and studying mm. about that history, it goes into what you said. Uh, uh, we have to be careful not to, uh, uh, you know, attempt to replace the oppressor and become the oppressor at the same mm -hmm. time. Yeah. Um, Doctor, it's been uh, a pleasure, man. I, I, I really enjoyed I really enjoyed this conversation for um, anybody that and I'm, I know that everybody's going to love it. But it, it, for everybody that wants to, you know, learn more about, uh, you know, you and follow you on social media and, and the works that you do, um, how can they how can they find you? Yep. So my website is KamalRashid.com. So that's uh, K-A-M-A-U-R-A-S-H-I-D.com. So you can connect with me there. I'm on uh, uh, Twitter at Kamal Rashid, uh, at Kamal Rashid. Uh, Instagram, I think it's also at Kamal Rashid. It's at dot Kamal dot Rashid. I forget, but it's, but I'm on Instagram. You can just search me and on and on Facebook. So I'm on and, and on the BB Toomey. And a BB Toomey is a is a black. Uh, and when I mean black, I mean black black social right. media. So I strongly encourage you to check it out. We'll do. That's a BB Toomey. A B B I T uh, A B B I T U M I dot com and BB Toomey dot com. No doubt. I'm definitely going to check that out, man. And I would uh, love to have you back on if you definitely, if you're willing to come back, man. We for got sure, more for sure. Definitely, definitely. Thank you for having me. No doubt, man. You have a good evening and peace to you and your family, brother. Definitely. Thank you. No doubt.